The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Tuesday, April 13th, 2021, the day before I get my second shot. It is 5.03 p.m. It is a beautiful sunny day in Washington after not being a beautiful sunny day in Washington. And I want to say that I invited John uh Last, Jonathan V. Last. What is the V for? Victor. Victor. It's got to be Victor. Because um, it's not Vincent. Um, I invited JVL on the show to, uh, you know, kind of figure out what we could do about this, this uh, internecine podcast tension that we have going on. Um, but... Uh, He's just not available, you know, and that's uh, one of those things that happens sometimes when you invite somebody on the show an hour and a half before the show on Twitter. Um, but I'm going to interpret it as a like unwillingness to face me man to man and our squabble over the attentions of one Sarah Longwell. I texted him and I said exactly that. I said, I said, it's when he said he was sorry, he couldn't make it. I said, it's cool. We'll make jokes about your unwillingness to face Ben directly. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I don't know how to respond to that, but I'm sure it's fine. Uh, well, I just want to say I have really tried to be above the fray in this dispute. Um, I haven't followed this guy on Twitter. I haven't even followed this. It's it not on. Like I'd enjoy it. It's not on Twitter. It's all in Bulwark. It's, it's all in the Bulwark uh, podcasts and live streams. Uh, and Jonathan, Jonathan is offended because for many uh, months now he has been introducing Sarah Longwell as his best friend, oh. and. Um, and then Sarah asked him to do, the, he asked her to hike the Appalachian Trail with him, by which he meant hike the, no, he meant hike the Appalachian Trail. And, um, but, um, uh, and she asked him to, uh, do a French Village podcast with her, um, and, they both rejected one another's proposals. <laughs> and so I agreed. I would, by the way, hike the Appalachian Sarah, Trail to, with, with JVL. You um, would? Sure. I love hiking the Appalachian Trail. But he did not ask me. Sarah did ask me to record the French Village podcast with her. And I said, sure. And JVL has been having a hissy fit on these podcasts ever since. These have included threats to my life and well-being. How could they get, he get away with that in like the modern, like the modern, like Twitter age? Where it's because everybody, everybody knows he's joking. We think, um, and poor Sarah has been caught in the middle of this. Um, and you know uh, how it is, Kate. Just a couple of guys fighting over you. You know. I know. This is like the only thing you didn't want in your entire life, Sarah. <laughs> um, also, Sarah, you're you've got some like sweet Republican mom hair happening right now. And it's you. like you've got like thank the you, little yes. dipsy do. Like you're gonna like run. I think my mom had that haircut from like 1992 to like 1998, for sure. Yeah, I just. I just went to get a haircut and the woman was a different person and she was like, so what do you do with your hair? And I was like, whatever the last person did. And she was like, so conventional Bob. And I was like, sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't have an opinion. It'll, it'll grow out soon enough anyway. Uh, anyway. Can you guys all hear me? Okay. Because there were some complaints in the chat. So I put in my headphones. I you know? am. I am going to make a slight adjustment to see if I can improve the sound slightly, but we can hear you fine. I'm very jealous of everyone's drinks right now. How about now? Talk now? How about now? Oh, that's quieter. 
quieter. I'm going to back off. You made it worse. You made it worse. <laughs> All right. To everybody who is complaining about Sarah's volume, deal, deal with it. Deal with it. Um, all right. I just want to say that is a long-winded way of saying. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Wow. Why did he make it worse, Ben? Yeah. So now I'm on like a delay. Uh, refresh. Refresh. What's happened, but... Yeah. You are super quiet now. Um, Why? It was so good. You fucked it all up, Ben. I fucked it up. <laughs> um, uh, well, we're going to deal with it. Um, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. We're not allowed to have Sarah Longwell sound uh, like herself, which is to say loud and boisterous. Um, but we are allowed to have her back on the podcast or on the whatever this is, the live stream. <laughs> um, Sarah, it's good to see you again. Mime something to us, Sarah. You have to fix this. No, no. All right, we're getting rid of you and we're going to bring you back. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, I'll talk about how I just taught easements in, in, in. All right, and, let's see if. Uh, no, if, you don't want to talk about that, Ben? No, I was going to say, let's see if uh, if Kate can make easements interesting. Um. Oh, yeah. Do so you want to know the story that I tell? Yeah. The story about like there was a forest. Hi, can you hear is you? That, is that better, Sarah? It's better for me. No. Okay. It's, you're still you're still super quiet. So switch your microphone off your. Uh, I'm gonna buy you some he a headset, Sarah. I have a headset, guys. I do podcasts every day, all day. It is only with you guys that I have a problem. I feel so special and honored. Click click, <laughs> click on the gear on your uh, on your controls on your screen and switch the head switch the input to your mic. I think we're getting you through your your computer audio, your computer internal mic on your computer now. I think that we're getting you through your shoe, like get smart or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far away you sound. Hey Ben, now, look, look what I found in my desk drawer. Now you're silent altogether and we're gonna have to bring you back. What did you find? Gushers. Oh, I haven't eaten anything today, and I'm like on hour four of teaching. So you're um, eating gushers. I need. I don't have food. I don't have any other food. But it's not a All fully right. functioning law school at the moment. Can we hear you now? I don't know. Can you? Yeah. Now you sound great. So okay, this is literally what I started out doing. So <laughs> fine, fine, guys. You didn't see us complaining at the beginning. <laughs> Never listen to the Greek chorus. They're just there. Like if it were up to them, you'd put out your eyes because like they, they just taunt you. Um, all right, easements. Oh, yeah. I just taught easements. I can show you my lecture. Um, I know that sounds really exciting to people. But no, the example I give in class, there are two types of well, not just two, but there's two main types of positive easements. Easements appurtenant and easements engross. And an easement appurtenant is like on the land. So it is like, Sarah, I give you this strip of land of like two feet on the side of my thing to walk through my property to your property or to get to like a road or something like that. Um, and those run with the land. The burden is on the land and the, like the land that happens. And so you can do this. So, but there's also easements engross which are easements when you give a specific person a right to do something. And so the example that I use for this is when I was a kid, my neighborhood, my little like residential kind of neighborhood backed up to a forest, um, like a big park with like frogs and creeks. And this was catnip for tiny KK. And I like wanted to go and I had to go out to a main road and get someone to drive me into the park if I wanted to go. But then I figured out that my neighborhood abutted it, like the backs of a whole group of houses abutted it. And I could cut through their, their like cross their land to get to get to like the park. And conveniently for me, my dentist 
was one of the, happened to live in one of these things. So I went up to Dr. Rosenthal and I said, Dr. Rosenthal, can I cut through your land in order to get to the park? And there was like no specific land easement. It was just like, he was just like allowing me to do it. This would be an easement in gross. I didn't know that when I was like eight, but he was like, yes. And then he moved away. And so the question that I asked my students is like, whether or not the easement still exists and you can transfer it or whether the transfer of land kills the easement. Meanwhile, the, uh, I, the, I like this conversation because instead of people complaining about uh, Sarah and my French pronunciation, they are now complaining about Kate's French pronunciation, even though Kate actually speaks French, which neither Sarah nor I does. I've never known how to pronounce this word and I choose not to care. Like so many things in like the law when people say Amici or Amiki or like Amicas or Amicuses or like they fuck it all up. I just like, I don't know. It really goes me, it goes, like it makes me crazy. And every time I try to pronounce it, I talk myself out of the right way to pronounce it before I say it out loud in my own head. And so I just gave up trying. How do you say it? Can someone type it into the chat? Is Eve freaking out that I said it? Is Eve freaking out that I said it wrong? I don't know. Um, uh, Eve doesn't freak out when people get uh, French pronunciation wrong. So, uh, Sarah, I have a serious question for you, um, which we have not talked about on the French Village podcast. And Kate has been texting frantically about the French Village <laughs> for <laughs> weeks. Sarah, you're just like ignoring me. You're um, like, no, I refuse. I already so, do something. So here's my question. Is it better or worse the second time you have watched the French Village? Because we have this, the big difference between us in the French Village podcast is that you've seen it all before and I haven't. Um, is it, are you enjoying it as much the second time? Um, I'm enjoying it differently. I don't think it's a better or worse thing. So the first time I obviously watched it, I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I just watched it uh, with my wife. And it was like, the main thing, you know, when you're eating something really good and you're just like really glad that there's a lot of it. Uh, like, you know, like if you're like, oh, this, is such good, this is like such a good thing I'm tasting. I'm glad the bag is big. Um, it's the inverse of that old joke about like, you know, this, the, this food is terrible and the portions are so small. <laughs> it's, it's the other side of that where it's, uh, this food is so good. And so like the thing about the French village is that I was just enjoying it so much. And I was just always so glad there were so many episodes. Cause I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad there's so many more seasons. Cause I like this so much. I don't ever want it to end. Uh, this time, obviously, that's, that's the way the French, by the way, felt about the occupation. They were like, this is good. It's going to be such great television. If only it could go on for more than four years. I have been yeah. obsessed with right. y'all's podcast. I mean, that's because I like both of you a whole lot, but also, and it feels like hanging out with friends and like all of the things that I'm thinking about and just like are bouncing around my head as I listen to you. And then like, after watching it, I'm like, Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Or like, I mean, there's just, it's just amazing. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank I'm, you. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you like it. I've, we've been getting great feedback. I I'm glad so many people watch the show and so far there's not too many people who've told me that they're like mad at me because I, you know, made them watch this French show that they hate. Like most people are really into it. Uh, and yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm the thing that I like about it this time is that I am watching it for things that like just washed over me the first time. Um, but that I like, if they weren't essential to the, like the plot, I didn't pay that much attention to them. But now, because I know I'm going to get to go into an episode with Ben and be like, tell me why the communists and socialists, like what is going on with them? And I know he's going to have an answer. I spent a lot more time rather than just letting it wash over me thinking like, okay, I want to talk about this because I want to understand why this has an impact. Um, I have learned so much history. I've learned so much history from Ben, listening to Ben. And like, I, I get a lot out of kind of cultural, cultural, um, cultural uh, moment, like movies or, or, or TV shows or books, like reading me into a narrative 
or a, pers- a political perspective or like an emotional perspective of like being in this thing. And then like, it changes all of the motivations of history. Like it just changes, ma- it makes history so much more real. And even you like with Ben, like obviously this is a fictional, this is a fictional um, story about this French village. But Ben's kind of like insight about like all of the historical things take stuff that I swear to God, I would have just like glazed over. Like if I was reading about it on Wikipedia and it like gives human, like every every person becomes kind of a human embodiment of like those various moments of politics and complications. And so it just, but you know, I would never have had the insight to realize that. And so like, so, it's fascinating. So the the, I cannot tell whether, and to do this, we would have to actually have somebody on who's been through the French school system or French university and whether the level of historical detail in this is just what a French viewer will expect. Because this is a period of French history that is, you know, it, it's called in 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 France the dark years. And it's it's a period that is obsessively studied. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a more intensely studied period of French history, ever. Um, and every generation since the war has really, really spent energy on this period. And so I, I, I think there is a, um, uh, uh. Like some of it may just be that French audiences for which this was made um, really do expect a certain level of of uh, accuracy and detail. But some of it, I think, is that the producers of this show were uh, obsessive about getting things right. Uh, there is there's a lot of history in this, and it's it's. As best as I can tell, and I, I'm not, you know, an expert on this period, but it nothing in it has seemed wrong to me. You know, when they when they talk about like I know the politics, the political divisions reasonably well. And when they talk about them, they get them right. Um, and so for example, in the first couple episodes. I pointed out on the podcast that it had accurately described the Communist Party's position prior to the Soviet invasion, uh, to the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, The new season, which I watched the first episode of last night, takes place three months after the uh, Operation Barbarossa begins. And the communists and socialists are sitting around together planning operations together because as soon as because the, the the Communist Party switched positions the moment the Russians Russia was invaded, they get a lot of things like that right, and um, it's a it's a good um, it's a good uh, it's really good. It's a good it, show. I, you know, I cannot think of an American show that spends the kind of energy on historical detail that this show does. Um, uh maybe like Mad Men, but like that's an easier lift. Yeah, but uh, Deadwood, I don't know. Like maybe you don't like, but Deadwood is actually pretty good. I know that that's like oh, that was not that was had a short run, but like that's one of my favorite. I love Deadwood. But yeah, I don't know. But the, the wire but, season two. I mean it yeah. I but the, but but they're not describing political events as densely complicated as as this. I mean Mad, yeah. Mad Men. Mad Men has a lot of social history in it. I've actually never watched Mad Men, but it's not like it is not trying to explain a period of a complicated period of American political history um, in detail, and we'll portray it in detail. At least, not that I know of. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm I'm very impressed by it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just glad you guys like it because I would have felt really bad if we were like somehow lock ourselves into, you know, eight seasons of podcasting and you were like, God, I hate this show. Why'd you make me watch it? <laughs> so I, I think if that had happened, Sarah, I would drop out. Yeah, fair. I'd be like, Jonathan Last, you win. Take her. <laughs> 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 uh, 
periods of time where I'm like, why am I doing this? And then I was like, oh, this is my idea. Like, I know how many episodes there are. I don't know what I was thinking. It's like, who? I don't have time for another podcast. You don't have time for another podcast. But I will say, I look forward to it the most of all the things I'm doing right now because it's really fun to do. Isn't that like a really interesting thing when you're so overbooked? Like the things you end up like looking forward to? Like, I there are so many panels that I'm just like, ah, and then like, I show up and there's a bunch of people that I really like. And I'm like, I still look forward to this every day. Like, this is still really nice. Although, Sarah, I'm a little pissed at you because you did not hold my hand in any way through the episode that caused me great trauma. <laughs> and like, basically, so, uh, wait, am I not allowed to talk about this? Because no spoilers. No, you're allowed to talk about it because it's in season one and uh, we're done with season one. Yeah. So there is an episode in which uh, I was, I was like, digging through this like the podcast i was kind of like a podcast i was watching the show and um as you know like nina had been sick for like three my dog had been sick for like three months i was completely overbooked i had not been sleeping i was like a little emotionally fragile so maybe nazi france is not the best thing to spend my like my emotional time on um but i got to the episode with gustav and captain carrot and the like the that last scene well like, first of all it's like he just scoops up the rabbit and is just like we'll get through it and i'm just with like holy like just like like a river of tears and then the end the last scene like the juxtaposition of like the meat on the counter and the rabbit slowly the rabbit coming into focus in the cage and don't tell me what happens to the rabbit i don't want i might i don't think i'm ever going to watch again because i think that now i know the captain carrot is okay and he'll be okay forever in my mind <laughs> and like, so notice how, how kate zeroes in on the core issue in the nazi occupation of france which is rabbit welfare yeah. right <laughs> this is exactly, and like I knew I was talking to Eva about this. We were texting, and I was like, she was like, I don't like how the director manipulates us so directly, like to like force us into these dichotomies of choosing, not feeling bad that like this Jewish boy is killed in the woods, or feeling bad, but like you still feel worse about like this rabbit. And I'm like, I like, I kind of hate myself. Like, that's the other big part. It was like, I'm like, I know this is a terrible choice to make, but I feel so like, I know this is not right, but like, I, I just, I felt really bad. Well, I happen to have a, a Hi, right here. Hey. And uh, she also has complaints about uh, the scripting, uh, but not, but less at least in, in my text feed about uh, Captain Carrot and uh, more about us. I was advised about Captain Carrot. That was poor. So I, I knew it would happen. So it was, Perfectly, yeah. <laughs> but more about Lucien. Um, yeah. Yeah, you really don't like Lucien. No. Uh, no. Well, she, she, she's jumping into the mouth of the, 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 the wolf and she's completely dumb. And she's, <laughs> and she's so uh, unique, like she has only one, uh, she exists only to be hit on by, by dudes. She has, it's the only reason why she's there. No. Well, how 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 far? Play the the violin, but only just to fall in love with the German guy. And I don't know. Where where are you in the show? What? Where are you in the show? Like what episode? Uh, I started this. I've started season two. I think I I'm in um episode four. Okay. I mean. Yeah. Well, I I've. I understand. I, I think your point is, I think you're right. Uh, but I just, you know, with eight seasons, you got to give these guys some time to breathe. Uh, and, and I think that we should have, we should, at the end, we can really evaluate all of these characters in total. Uh, because uh, I, I agree with you so far. That's what we've seen of Lucienne. Um, and, and maybe that's all we'll see. She's <laughs> but I just, I, you, you know, you wait and see, wait and see. We'll see how we feel at the end. You're bad at no spoilers, Sarah. You're like, I noticed this too. There was like this interesting kind of, it was like watching you do, it's like watching you do your focus groups. 
like to like listen to you like talk to Ben, you like try as neutrally as possible, knowing like knowing what's what like the, what's going to happen or like what should happen. And you just kind of state something and you're like, so what did you think of that? <laughs> and then you just let Ben like kind of give his opinion. You're like, oh really? I don't I don't know that I agree with that. <laughs> I'm like, interesting. <laughs> so um let's talk about things other than the French village. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling about politics and life these days, Sarah? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll be honest with you since we're on this show that I spent all day researching blood clots because I um, am a woman between 18 and 48 uh, who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine within the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I've been trying all day to figure out how I feel about the FDA making this change. Uh, because, you know, right now everybody is worried about whether or not pulling the, putting, putting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine on pause, whether or not that is going to, you know, hurt, whether it's going to increase vaccine hesitancy or even anti-vaccine sentiment, uh, forgetting that actually it also is going to cause people to freak out. Uh, who are in the demographic uh, that this is happening to, who've received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, so uh, mainly I've been trying to figure that out today. Uh, but it did cause me to think a lot about, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I've been saying about the focus groups, there's a fair number of people, you know, I, I come across a lot of people who say they're not going to get the vaccine. Um, but it has caused me to think a lot about the difference between vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxing, because they are actually two totally different uh, phenomena. And one is, I think, actually pretty legitimate, uh, right? Like, the, a lot of times, something that people say is, I don't know, you know, this happened really fast, and I'm not sure it's been studied enough, and, like, I might get it eventually, but I'm not going to get it right away. And I don't think that's the most, like, if I'm being completely honest, there was definitely a... Uh, you know, before I even went in, I was like, you know, this did happen fast. Uh, and I'm like a big believer in vaccines. I really wanted it. Uh, I got it as soon as I was able. I signed up every place I could. I got called by the DC lottery and I was very excited. Um, but I will say that, like, there is this part of me when this news comes out today that says, um, boy, I hope in 10 years, uh, you know, I like, I'm just, I like, it's like, it made me, it like freaked me out a little bit. I'm just telling you for real how I felt about the fact that it freaked me out a little bit. So are you, uh, would you consider yourself now hesitant to get the J&J &J vaccine? Or would you say, hey, six and 6.8 million is a complication rate that I can uh, handle with equanimity? Uh, it is the the latter. Um, I don't think that this was handled particularly well, though, because I think that it was the news that dropped was just this is being pulled because of this this particular problem. It's a similar problem that they've been seeing in another, you know, in the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so, uh, I, like, I don't think that it's uh, and so so as the day went on people started doing more contextualizing, like this is how many blood clots, you know, you'd take from, get it from taking birth control pills or, um, you know, from smoking or for this, you know, whatever, other things that you can, you can start to contextualize. But it is, I think somebody said this in the chat, I think it's right, like it's human nature to some degree when you're like, wait, women, 18 to 48, who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine within the last two weeks, that's me. And to say, Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel nervous about that. And, and in a way that is not, my brain can contextualize it and I can, and I read a lot and, and, and I think, you know, politically I can say, boy, I wish that they had given more context to this up front. I do worry about it creating, you know, Tucker Carlson's next storyline about how they're trying to hide things from us and hide things from us and how this is so bad. So um, I worry about that too, but I, I, it is, it, it is just human nature, I think, to say, to, to worry about these things. It's Josh Sharstein talked about this, right? Like this was like kind of the idea of like identifying things and trying to assess risk assessments. And when you publicly state something, you draw attention to it. And then there 
people have like different biases for risk assessment and different heuristics for risk assessment. And it becomes very like they, like some of them are really some, it's hard to, it's hard to slow think your way out of like the, like what exactly what you described, which is the, Oh my God, that's me. That's like, that's exactly, you know, and the CDC just changed his mind. And like, I am a rational, very like smart thinking individual, but it's the CDC. I tell all these other people to listen to the CDC. I, Why wouldn't I be worried? I mean, I, I have to say, though, my reaction to this was a little bit different. Um, I know more than six women between the ages of 18 and 48 who have had blood clots without getting the J&J &J vaccine. And I remain confused as to what the null hypothesis is here. I, I mean, if, if you take 6.8 million women between the ages of 18 and 48, and you count the number of blood clots that they've had in the last, uh, you know, in the two weeks following any particular day, there's gonna be a certain number of blood clots. The number is not gonna be zero. And I guess I'm a little bit perplexed as to why the CDC, and look, there are very serious scientists at the CDC. This is not a, and FDA as well, this is presumably not a scientific artifact. They're responding to something. But the number six out of 6.8 million strikes me as so vanishingly small that I'm not sure I understand why we are assuming these are adverse events at all. Yeah, I agree. So I think that's right. Um, and, and maybe they, I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think, look, they're going to pause it and study it. I think it would be one thing if we didn't have an alternative. I will say I had the choice uh, of which one I got. And if I had known this, Right. I chose Johnson and Johnson because I was like, uh, it's the one actually, like, I actually kind of thought about it and thought, A, it's only one shot. I like that. I knew it was slightly lower in its efficacy, but you know, they were all pretty effective. Um, and, but if I had known this, I would have gotten a different one. Like I would have. And so I think having that information is important. Uh, anyway, yeah, I wanted one and done. So we have a bunch of questions for you about focus groups. Uh, Esther, the floor is yours. Hi. Um, I wonder, hey Kate, um, I wonder if you have done much work with your focus groups on concepts of or attitudes towards democracy. And I ask because within conversations that I might have, I, we're often talking about pro-democracy versus anti-democracy forces. And I have the real sense that the average person who's not keeping up with current events and politics really doesn't think about that issue at all, or at least not in that way. So how do you get at that and what are you finding out? Yeah, that's such a great question slash observation. And it's true. People do not think about people don't think about democracy the way that we do in these forums. I'm in a lot of groups that you know, are focused on democracy. I run a group that's got democracy in its name. Uh, average voters do not think about things in terms of democracy. Um, and, and that as a concept, it's not, it's not that it's not, it, they, it would be important to them if you brought up democracy and asked them specific questions about democracy, but it never, ever, ever comes up in any way um, unprompted. Uh, now, certain tenants, uh, a liberal democracy come up that are important to people. Um, so for example, I'm doing a bunch of focus groups recently in Georgia, and I've been asking them about how they feel about the elected officials who uh, objected to the election. Specifically, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, because she's from Georgia, uh, who said things prior to the election, like or prior to the insurrection, just a day before actually, that we can't have a peaceful transition of power. We cannot have a peaceful transition of power because this election has been stolen from Donald Trump. And people say things, their responses to that are things like, well, that's her freedom of speech. Um, and, and, and even on the objections, they say things like, well, that's their right. It's not illegal. And they very much isolate and blame the people who stormed the Capitol 
specifically for their behavior, and they do not hold Donald Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Josh Hawley or any of the elected officials who lied to them about the election um, accountable for it. Uh, which and 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 so I when I think about messaging, uh, it's funny. I actually did a series of focus groups at some point around democracy reforms um, and and different sort of institutional reforms that could be made. And when you even just tell people like democracy reform is a concept, they think it means reform for Democrats. Like they hear democracy and they hear Democrat. Um, and so, yeah, big picture democracy, not on the tips of the tongues of your average voter. Tom McGuckin. Hi, guys. Hey, I wanted to show a new toy I got. Uh, try that as a camera, guys. Okay, it's not on an iPhone, um, but it really does take good pictures. The only trouble is, with a camera that weighs two and a half pounds, you have to have a plan. Okay, you just don't haul it around in your pocket and snap everything. Sarah, uh, as I said, you're the guardian of democracy. I've always been your great admirer. Here's what I want to know. Um, I didn't get it, but uh, a lot of people got 1400 bucks in their bank account. And um, what I want to know is, what did they think of it? Did they think of it in economics? We used a term called mana from Hanover. Okay, it's floating down. They just came down out of nowhere. Uh, or two, uh, you know, uh, what was the, uh, that it uh, is an entitlement that's going to keep on going. Or three, uh, was a counting error, which is what I deal with all the time. Uh, but... Uh, so, what is your focus group? Have you asked them about the fourteen hundred bucks or not? I have, uh, and I will tell you. There's different. First of all, I love that guy when he's on. Uh, he's guy, the best. He he's amazing. The, he's got the liquor in the background. He's always got something for show and tell. Tom McGuckin's the best. Bottles of wine. He's amazing. Tell that guy we should hang. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, so it depends. Uh, it depends. The, the reactions to people have been different. So I've been doing a lot of different groups. So if you recall, prior to the election, I focused primarily on uh, Trump 2016 voters who rated him as doing a very bad or somewhat bad job because I was looking for the slice of persuadable voters and was thinking about how you could persuade them to vote for Joe Biden. So I'm talking to lots of different groups now. So I'm talking to a bunch of of groups of Trump voters or Marjorie Taylor Greene voters, Trump 2020 voters, but I've also been talking to Trump 2016 voters who voted for Biden in 2020. So uh, the swing voters really who decided the election and like they're completely different types of people. So the, 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 the Biden 2020 voters, even though they voted for Trump in 2016, they are, you know, you may recall from when I did a mock focus group uh, here on the show that my first question is always, how do you think things are going in the country? And the most common answer to how do you think things are going in the country is verbatim shit show. Like that is all I got in 2020. Um, and, and people really thought things were going poorly. The, the first group that answered that in a majority optimistic way was the 2016 Trump 2020 Biden voters who feel like maybe things are turning around. Um, and the people who voted for Biden tend to be much more both aware of and happy about uh, the $1,400 checks. Now, there is a real sense, though, of among all of the voters uh, that that it is um, that you have to pay for it. Like these are they're all aware, like this is a trade off. I want to know where this money's coming from. People are aware of that. The Trump voters, the Trump. They're not voters, wrong. <laughs> they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I'm just saying people have an intuitive sense. Uh, or even have some some something to back it up sometimes where they say, well, it's $1,400, but how much is it going to cost the country to pay for all of these things? I'll tell you that Trump voters are even more likely to talk about it that way, where they think like, and I, I had one woman that, that stuck out to me, and I've thought about her answer since, where she's, she was actually quite angry uh, about who got the money. So she was saying, I'm on a fixed income, I'm on disability, I need to, I need $1,400 really bad. I need more than that. So why are people who make $70,000 getting these $1,400 checks? And like, she was much less focused on what she got and much more focused on what other people were getting that she thought were undeserving of the money. 
Um, and I would say that's not an uncommon type of response where people tend to focus a little bit less on what they get and more about what they're angry about other people getting. Andrew McCurdy, the floor is yours. Hi. Uh, so I think this is my first time since you guys had the anniversary. So congrats. Uh, this thing has been Thank a you. saver uh, for the past year. Um, so Sarah, you've talked about how there are different segments of the Republican Party before. And I'm curious, what percentage do you think are actual diehard supporters, the kind of white nationalists, alt-right, Q supporters? And what percent are just kind of casual conservative, business conservatives who kind of pay attention to politics but constantly hear from friends about how great Trump is and that that forms their perception? And then what percent of that needs to change for reasonable Republicans to regain control of the party? Thank you. Well, it's, you know, great question. Um, it's the kind of thing I think about all the time. It's not, I don't know how precise, there was a, there was a, somebody put out kind of a pie chart not that long ago that had uh, kind of the never Trump at 10%, the move on from Trump at like 15%, uh, and then like Q, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, so maybe I shouldn't put them out here, but like this exists, this kind of breakdown where, and it, it was funny because I remember they had the QAnon conspiracy groups broken out from the hardcore Trumpers um, and together they equaled more or less a majority of Republican voters. Um, I think, you know, I think between never Trumpers and the move on from Trump, we got we got close to 30% maybe. Um, and so you could think that the party is pretty fully Trump's. The, the other thing that I'll tell you that I don't hear people talk about as, as much, but that strikes me as relevant is that it's not the percentage in that bar chart or then that, that chart is interesting, but like Trump found 10 million more votes between 2016 and 2020, like 10 million more people. I thought after 2016 that he must've kind of, capped out at what that guy could find and i was not look i knew turnout was going to be high on both sides but it is the reason that republicans are not in any way rethinking their strategy is that they can't believe that 74 million people voted for them and it actually had good benefits for them down ticket and so they want to keep all those people engaged and interested and at the crux of your question is really like can the party be saved or is it fully in the grip of people who are hardcore kind of MAGA? And the answer is the party cannot be saved in the immediate term. Uh, it is in the grip of hardcore MAGA. We are going to go through a couple cycles uh, where we are going to have to continue to fight tooth and nail against that influence. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, 10 years from now, as you see a lot of uh, demographic change and um, sort of the, the Republicans tend to be on the older side. Um, I think once there's sort of some turnover in the voting population, uh, we are going to have to keep making the case for liberal democracy and for sanity and a bunch of other things uh, so that ultimately uh, we can get the Republican Party back. Uh, but it's going to take it's going to take cycles, many cycles, years It is not something that happens next year. In fact, I say this all the time on the secret pod, but through redistricting alone, I'm not sure Republicans can't take back the House, you know, just mathematically. Um, and so I'm, I think in the short term, we've still got every, all, we're still fighting as hard as we were two years ago. It's not really redistricting that's going to cause that. It's reapportionment, right? Reapportionment, sure. Yeah. Well, they're going to redraw the lines. Yeah. But but the, the big issue is not that they're going to be able to gerrymander stuff that right. they weren't able to, it's it's actually that the states that they're going to, that they have control over the districting process are going to gain more, more representatives. Alice Lee, the floor is yours. Hi, Kate. Um, so I find the argument that a lot of this craziness comes from small dollar donors really convincing. And I'm wondering if you have any theories about why Democrats based on things like HR1, seem to not have caught on to that. Um, and do you think oh my God, this is such a <laughs> question and a smart thing. And I think that because I say it all the time, this is like, this is one of my big frustrations right now is like <laughs> HR1 and I'm like, HR1 looks like it was written in 1996. Like it is just, 
it is like attacking a problem around donor dollars that like doesn't is not an issue right now like literally the republican party right now is going like this to corporate america and saying you can't control me you know why because small dollar donations are where it's at marjorie taylor green is going to outraise everybody with 3.2 million dollars josh hawley big he doesn't care about his donors walking away because he just raised three million dollars from small from fifty-seven thousand people who love the fact that he puts his fist in the air and 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 gets an insurrection going and the incentives are all running in a new direction they're they are running in the direction of being loud being crazy being canceled uh having grievance and having pe being able to say they're coming for me and i represent you i fight for you i'm standing matt gates is out there saying like this phrase right now i stand between you and and the establishment the corporate media like I, i'm like seeing tweets today where it's like corporations are going to cancel you people and i'm like that's not a thing like the like people these corporations they need you to buy coca-cola they don't want to cancel you they are not going to donate to people you know they're trying to use their clout to say they're not going to donate to people who are against you know liberal democracy uh but but anyway the point is you're just completely right and this is a real uh, this is a real thing that i feel like democrats i don't understand hr1 um i think that the the attack on voting rights is the number one threat that the country faces at the moment and that it should be treated as such and there shouldn't be an 800 page bill that brings in all kinds of stuff like um like uh you know financing elections and all the corruption stuff and like an 800 page wish list for that was put together by by progressives um to like we have to do the voting thing like i want to see a 60 page bill on expanding voting rights and and holding off republicans from doing things like just saying hey just no matter how they vote in our state we're going to send whatever electors we want like it is active it is it is there's actually dangerous things happening on voting and we should act accordingly and not worry about like campaign finance reform that solves the problems of 1998. Speaking of 1996 and Josh Hawley, you know what happened in 1996? Josh Hawley graduated from high school? No, section 230. Sorry. Oh, just <laughs> Josh, Josh, Josh Hawley may have graduated from middle school. Um, Alice, you had, you wanted to follow up? Yeah, why do you think that's the case? Because like, why are they not talking to you or like anyone who's noticed this or is it a better do they realize it and like think corporate money is a good talking point like what gives you know you are right that everybody should talk to me <laughs> why to doesn't me. everyone talk to you sarah why don't they i don't understand uh you know here's why i think that uh hr1 got put together by a whole bunch with a whole bunch of progressive groups at a, at a table and they all got their licks in and that's fine. That's the way some things get done. Uh, I think that if they had a 60, a 60 vote majority in the Senate, then they could pass HR one. But like Joe Manchin has been very clear. He is not blowing up the filibuster. So, and I will, t I mean, I do talk to people and I, I say to anyone who will listen, anything that's going to get passed that you can't push through reconciliation, you got to start with Manchin, Murkowski, Collins, Romney, Cinema. Like they should be the new squad. There needs to be a center squad, and the center squad is the are they're the only people who can save democracy. And like you're gonna have to figure, and you're gonna have to be like, what is your compromise on voter ID? You know, for all the for all the freaking out about Georgia, the last four digits of a social security number sounds like a good compromise on voter ID to me. And like they're they're you're gonna need to start there just it cannot you cannot uh let the enemy the perfect be the enemy the good or let uh you know the the tail wag the dog you have you need republican votes on this so you've got to you got to think differently about your strategy mr nelson thank you, thank you. whoa that's awesome uh no it's not um uh, I think that is probably coming through Sarah's line. So let's mute Sarah and see if we can get you to be able to answer the question, uh, pose your question, except you vanished. Um, all right, we are working on bringing, oh, sorry, it was, there we, we go. We had two windows open and. 
whoops. And now he vanished again. Um, Nelson, Michael Nelson, let's bring him back. Um, we're trying this again, people. Uh, there we go. Sorry. All right. And I Take do three. stuff for a living. Um, quick question. In the last five days, we've had Donald Trump, the, the other guy, go after Mitch McConnell and then attack uh, Georgia Governor Kemp. Who's next? I mean, and why is Trump doing this? Is this for money, power, publicity, all of the above? You have to unmute her, Ben. Oh, there she goes. Yeah, Just I got it. So, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't be the one to get inside Trump's brain in general, because uh, it sounds like a terrible place to hang out. But look, I think um, Donald Trump definitely wants to be the 2024 presumptive nominee. Uh, and if, and so, and, and to do that, so like, first of all, his presidency was a grift. Everything that's happened post-presidency is a grift. Like a hundred percent he's doing, he wants to stay in the news. He wants to raise money. He wants to be the thought of as the de facto 2024 nominee. Uh, and as Nikki Haley made patently clear yesterday, uh, during her press conference, he is that they will all go and check with him before they decide whether or not they run. And if he's running, they will not run. He can absolutely clear the field. Um, and yeah, why is he attacking people? He's attacking people because he doesn't want anybody to think that they can round up enough people to put him on the back burner, right? He, he's going after Mitch McConnell. And the thing is, he's bested Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, you know, man, you're going to shoot at the king. You best not miss. And that guy, Mitch McConnell, decided to not take a real shot. He decided to take a half shot and not, not vote to impeach, but stand on the floor and excoriate Trump. And Trump is now going to destroy him for it. And 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 Trump is going to make sure that everybody knows he still has that juice. And the fact that three months after Trump decided in this direction, all of the donors were willing to to blaze a path to Mar-a-Lago to go down there and sit to sit there and listen to what he has to say. I don't care if they were leaking to Politico. Who cares? They like they showed up for that. They wanted to go there and listen and go to Mar-a-Lago and listen to Trump. Uh, and that is uh disgusting horrible frightening like choose your choose your word um but it is a testament to where the party is which is still completely in the thrall of, of trump eg phillips aka duck with ducks with pants yes oh uh, i know you clear. on twitter well thank you yes i i hope my my icon is memorable that's the whole idea and it's ducks with pants let's be very clear that these are these are multiple ducks with the pants and multiple with, pants that that's debatable um but obviously uh it, it the whole phrase lends itself to some flexibility um anyway given the lovely discussion we started off at the top of the um the, the podcast or whatever this is or becomes I was wondering if um, you know if Sarah and Ben would be amenable to a lay podcast live edition uh, where you bring in people and we specifically talk about the French Village, perhaps not at the expense of the Greek chorus members who are not following the podcast. Yeah, you should do it at the end of every season or something. That was my thought. An occasional, uh, you know sort of summation type of thing. We can grouse about things like, or just talk. What do you think, Sarah? It would it would be easy-ish to arrange? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical of the technical capabilities that we have based <laughs> on our, based on our um, core record here, but I'm all for it. That would actually be really fun. I would love to hear what people think. It's actually easy to do technically. What you do is you run this, um, and then you simultaneously run Zencaster or Squadcast, so you get a decent recording of us, and then uh, whatever Crowdcast can deliver for the audience questions. Uh, I this is I love this idea. Let's do it. Me too. Let's do it. This is a great Let's idea. Let's do it at the end of season two. All right. Okay, great. All right, Ducks with Pants, you will host it. Um, oh. uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You'll play guitar. Um, okay. All right. 
Our last question before we have a special uh, little moment to talk about is, no, not Maggie Feldman Pilch, um, is the Reverend Dr. Hillary Livingston. Hello. How Hello. are you guys? How are you? I'm good. I had I had my second Pfizer shot like two days ago, and I'm feeling a little funky, but okay. Good. So. I'm glad you're all back. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so um, a big fan of you, Sarah, and a fan of the Bulwark. So thank you for sharing with us. Um, I'm also listening to the to the French Village podcast, although I'm not watching the show because I'm not going to watch a show on um, Nazis and stuff after surviving a pandemic. But I am enjoying the podcast. <laughs> You're not the first person who said this to me. And I have a serious question. Okay. Is, the, is the podcast comprehensible? without watching the show? I think so. Wow. I mean, I think it's, I mean, you guys describe what's going on and you fill in the history and Sarah brings up kind of the, um, you know, the human drama. So, I mean, I feel like I'm, I don't, you know. All right. I don't, I don't need to see the French village get taken over by the Nazis. I can, I'm kind of with you guys, so. <laughs> and, and and you know not to like Hortense and and yeah, uh, I, yeah okay. I'm so not I'm so down on Hortense yeah All right. yeah so down on her yeah totally um, but I'm but I'm into Captain Carrots and I'm I'm fan of him so um, so my question along those lines is if you could what character would you, if you put yourself in what character would you be in French Village and why okay. Well, I can't do this entirely without spoilers, but I'm 100% Marie, and no one's allowed to tell me I'm not Marie. Uh, and, uh, you know, as the show goes on, I just think, look, the reason that I'm so into French Village is because I did think that it it touched on some things that I thought about a lot during the Trump years, which is why do people make the decisions that they do, and what is it that separates people who look at what was going on and say, this is bad. And I can see that it's bad and there is no, we should not accommodate it. We should not rationalize it. We should not excuse it. I was surrounded by people like that. And I could not see any real difference between them and the people who went along for a variety of reasons, because the incentives were the same for all of us on the Republican side. So it was to go along to get along. We all had jobs or things that we did and that, that, that gave us reason why we should just go along. And we, some people didn't and lots and lots of people did. And so I am like very interested in characters who for reasons that you can't discern, like there's not an external motivation. It seems to just come from a place where they just look at what's happening and say, this is wrong. And I want to put things on the line for it. Like that matters to me. And like Marie to me on the show. And so this is like kind of arrogant, maybe actually that I'll just say, I want to be Marie. Um, but, uh, but, but I think that she is the purest person where you see it's just like a question of character. Like she just says, I see this stuff is wrong and I want to help. I just want to help. I want to do something about it. And yeah, it's going to be risky, but uh, I, it matters to me. So I'm going to do it. And like, she's not a perfect person and she makes uh, immoral decisions in other places in her life. Uh, but she is pretty mission oriented in, in as the show goes on. Um, and I also think like finds herself uh, as the show goes on and, and in, in the roles that she plays. Uh, and anyway, that's, that's, that's who I hope. That's who I aspire to be. Ben, who are you? <clears throat> so I agree with everything that Sarah says about Marie. Uh, and I think she's in many ways, the moral voice of the story. Um, but I, can't be Marie because Sarah is. Um, and so I want to flag two other characters. Um, one Don't is steal Dick, mine. One is Dick Cavell, who is crusty and unpleasant and uh, also like Marie, just kind of snaps to attention and does the right thing. And you don't really notice it in quite After the same way. After beating a prostitute for like... Yeah, right. You don't really notice it because he is unpleasant in other ways. He's not above abusing his power. He is... Um, he's... Um, but there are... He does not 
hesitate when uh, when Jewish lives are at stake, ever. He just does it. Um, he does not hesitate when somebody needs to step up and run an intelligence operation against Vichy. Um, he is does not shrink from hard decisions about how to protect his operation, which has a real moral component. He protects his people. Um, and I think he's a, he's an, he starts off as an unappealing character because he's a cop for Vichy, but he becomes an increasingly appealing character the more it, the more the, uh, the show goes on. The other one who I think starts as an appealing character and just stays that way the whole time is Suzanne, uh, the socialist postal worker. Um, and uh, she's less noticed because she's more of a minor character, but she actually stands for something very important in the show, which is that the resistance was not the sole province of a, or even the principal province of the, of an alternative totalitarian ideology. Uh, and there were, you know, the majority of France was not communist. And it, there was, there were these democratic resistance movements that operated within the parameters of the Republic that we don't really remember all that much, but they were, actually motivated by things that resemble our values. And, and she just very cheerfully and energetically does what needs to be done and does it without the overlay of a totalitarian ideology that Marcel is struggling with uh, and chafing at sometimes. And I think that's, it's elegantly portrayed. It's not heavy handed, um, but she is so much more appealing than than the communists who she uh, um, uh, uh, consorts with for purposes of getting things done. Uh, so I, I like the two of them very much. And uh, those are my, um, those are my, um, uh, uh, if I had to be one. Which now, one do you, who do you, wait, who do you think I am? <clears throat> oh, you're, you're, I mean, if, you're Captain Carrot, um, as, unless uh, we restrict you to humanity, in which case you are clearly Gustav. Yes, I'm so Gustav. I am totally Gustav. And this brings us to our special guest, Maggie Feldman Pelch, whose birthday it is. And therefore, <laughs> since, it, since it were, oh, no. if it were our birthday, she would sing happy birthday to us. I would. Uh, since it is her birthday, I feel obligated to sing happy birthday to her. I'm so glad this is going to be recorded. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Oh, he's not bad. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Margaret uh, Feldman Pilch. Happy birthday to you. Happy wow. birthday, Maggie! Thank you. So, Ben, does this mean we get to? Are we, can we out your previous musical experience? Because you've done one musical thing in your life that I have not yet done. You mean that I've auditioned at the Met? Yeah. I have indeed auditioned at the Met. The fuck! Um, I just find this out. Three eighty-two episodes into it, <laughs> <was> like <laughs> Did you like um, rush the stage during somebody else's audition? <laughs> no, it's, there's a funny story behind it where we are over time already, but maybe if somebody brings this up on Just Us Saturday, I will tell the story of how I came to audition at the Met. Cool. No Richard Wattenbarger, I cannot sing Votan, um, and um, I'm not going to try. Thank you Ma for singing happy birthday to me. Maggie, you. uh, you're, uh, it's lovely to see your face. We haven't been for a walk in a while. Uh, I know, we gotta so do that. We gotta do that. Yeah. See you soon. Sarah Longwell, you're a great American. Um, and it is wonderful to see your face, which I do now every Friday when we record a French Village podcast. 
I will point out to those of you um, who uh, uh, have answered the poll that 64%, uh, sorry, 72% of you have not watched any of the French Village podcast and 66% of you have not listened to the French Village podcast at all. Y'all come into the light mm -hmm. uh, and- um, Hope you're getting and, royalties for this, Sarah. And join us on the uh, Ducks with Pants hosted live episode of uh, the French Village podcast live whenever we do it. Kate, I am getting my vaccine, second vaccine shot tomorrow. I will probably be here at five, but I reserve the right to send you a text at 4.30 that says I am illin and uh, you're on your own tonight. So uh, tell us about tomorrow's show. Uh, we're gonna have Jillian York on um, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation talking about her new book, Silicon Values. Uh, she will be calling in from Germany. It will be very late on her time. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully Ben will be able to join us, but if not, maybe we'll get a, maybe we'll get a guest host. Who knows? We will be back 22 hours and 52 minutes for all of that. And until then, Sarah? We don't have fun anymore, but we do this. What's the, out, what's, what's the outro? <laughs> no, you just did it. It's whatever you say. It's we don't have fun anymore, but but you have now been on the show enough that we can actually defer to you on the outro. See you tomorrow, I love folks. It. Love it here every day. Bye, guys. <laughs>